Okay, thank you. Oops. And so I want us to think about that today. Because it's going to be integral to our story and to our sermon. Now I want to begin that there are some stories that are in the scriptures that are so fundamental, so foundational, that they deserve review every once in a while. That often their complexity lies in the fact of their simplicity. They're worth review because there are times, at least like me, as I've studied scriptures, my understanding increases. And you go back to these stories and you start to see things that you did not see from the beginning. One such story is the story of the temptation. We know at the temptation that there were three lies told about God. Now, two are obvious. When Satan said, thou shalt not surely die, and the other was, you will be like God. But there was a third lie, much more subtle, not really spoken, but implied. And it was that third lie that was the most damaging, because in it, he implied that God could not be trusted. You can't trust his words. And by the way, the tree, he's keeping something from you. He's not sharing everything with you. That temptation gets repeated with the second Adam. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 24. Or excuse me, Matthew 4. And I'd like to read the second temptation, the temptation that was given to Jesus, whom Paul referred to as the second or the last Adam. And I'm going to read it very quickly because I don't intend to spend a lot of time here. But there's something I want us to grasp about the importance of how Jesus deals with Satan. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights after he was hungry, and when a tempter came to him, he said, If, remember I said about that planting the seed of doubt, if you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the devil took him up into the holy city, he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. You want to quote me scriptures? I'll quote it back. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you and their hands, that they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus again said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give to you if you will but fall down and worship me. Remember, he was offering Jesus a way to get what he came for without having to go to the cross. And Jesus again said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. My question to you is this, without looking at your footnotes, 
or the side notes in your Bible, what book was Jesus quoting from? Was it Psalms? Was it Genesis? Was it Exodus? I heard somebody say it. It was Deuteronomy. All three times he was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. I'd like to follow along, if you will, to what these words and what he was quoting from. The first was in Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is the full context. Well, I shouldn't say the full context, but at least in context. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna. What is he talking about? The journey in the wilderness after he had brought them out of Egypt. And fed you manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man, what, shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Thank you. Then, on the second, he was quoting from this, Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God, but the context, as you tempted him at Massa. Now, if you're not familiar with Massa, that is when the Israelites, after having come out of Egypt, they were complaining about water and came to Moses. Has the Lord brought us out here only for us to die of thirst? The third was from Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. And sometimes I wish that word oath wasn't there because Jesus says later on we shouldn't take oaths, that your yes be yes, but your no be no. But that meaning of oath has a different meaning than what we typically think of. And then we have our scripture reading today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, you shall love him with all your heart, all your strength. When Jesus was quoting the great commandment, he was quoting from what book? The book of Deuteronomy. So my question to you is this. Why should the book of Deuteronomy be of interest to Christians? After all, we are told time and again, the Old Testament was for the Jews. We're Christians. We're New Testament, right? Well, consider these facts. The book of Deuteronomy was quoted more and cited more than 200 times in the New Testament, only exceeded by Psalms, Genesis, Exodus, and, of course, Isaiah. The book of Deuteronomy also happened to be Jesus' favorite book. The only one he ever quoted more was from Psalms. As we saw when Jesus was tempted all three times, what book did he read from? Did he quote from? Deuteronomy. And when he was asked what was the greatest commandment, again, he was quoting from Deuteronomy. He was specifically quoting what is the beginning of what the Hebrews refer to as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with how much of your soul? All your soul. And how much of your strength? All of your strength. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth and last book of Moses. 
contains 34 chapters. For me, the key chapters in Deuteronomy are chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapter 6, because they encompass the reading of the Ten Commandments. It's a prologue and an epilogue to it. The book of Deuteronomy is also the only other book aside from Exodus which contains the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy, however, God not only reveals law, but he also reveals, in many cases, the principles behind those laws, which to me is even more important than the laws themselves, because they reveal the true character of God and the character of how we should be reflecting his character. The book of Deuteronomy also is Moses' farewell address. Scholars debate whether he read it all at one time or all of, maybe broke it up into three parts or something. What is interesting is, is that it is his farewell address before he was entering into, before Israel was about to enter into the promised land. And if you remember, he was not allowed to go in because he had dishonored God when he said, are we to bring forth water? He also, in the book of Deuteronomy, names his successor, who's going to carry on. He names Joshua, son of Nun. And if you're not familiar with Hebrew and Greek comparisons, the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. See, God was, was laying out a parallel for us to understand that the law can draw us close to God, but it can't blot out our sin, and it cannot change our character. It will only take Joshua, his righteousness, his character, to get us in. Now, Deuteronomy, as you read it, has some interesting stories as well. And there's some interesting connections to the New Testament. There's this story in Matthew about uh, Jesus and the disciples going through the grain field. Do you remember that? And the Pharisees were watching them, and they accused them of doing what? Of violating the Sabbath. The problem with that issue is, is that in Deuteronomy 4, God explicitly states, do not add to or do not take away from the law. At least you corrupt yourselves. And it turns out that if you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, you will see the law that they are trying to cite. See, the law says that if you're going through the grain field and you're hungry, you can take and you can take some of it and eat. Or if you're going past a grapevine and you're hungry and the grapes are ripe, you can eat. But what you cannot do is you cannot take a sickle and a sack and harvest it. What's missing? There's no mention of restriction that it could not be done on any day of the week, be it Sabbath or any other. So the, did the Jews, were they following the law? No. They were doing exactly what Jesus said they were doing. They were following their own man-made traditions, setting aside the commandments of God. There's another interesting story in the Gospel of John, and that's where in chapter 5, there's that man who's sitting next to the pool of Bethesda, and, and 
and he's lame. And how many years? Does anybody remember how many years was he lame? 38 years. Now, those of you who know me know I like to dig deep into scriptures, and I dug for a long time trying to figure out some kind of meaning to that 38, because I learned a long time ago that there is no such thing as a trivial piece of information in the Bible. And I'm not going to go through and enumerate all the various creative ways that I tried to dissect it. There is a principle called Occam's Razor, where the simplest solution is usually the correct solution. All I needed to do was go, because that number appears one other time in scriptures. Anybody want to take a guess what book? Deuteronomy. Moses repeats it in Deuteronomy 2.14, and this is what he is telling the people. We have gone around this mountain long enough. It is time to go forward. It is time to move into the promised land. For 38 years you've gone around. Isn't it powerful that he's now telling us, he tells that man, it's time to go forward. As I mentioned, Moses gives his farewell address. Is there a parallel in the New Testament? Go read John, chapters 14 through 17. Jesus is giving his farewell address as he prepares for his exodus. See, at Mount Sinai, this is one of the things that sometimes translations miss as good as they can be, as great as they can be. I have yet to find a translation that really reveals what he was saying. Because he uses the word, I am preparing for my exodus. See, the same way Israel came out of Egypt, Jesus follows that same path. And if we understand scriptures properly, in principle, we will also go through that same path. We will go through exodus again. What does the song say? And the skies roll back as the sea. We also find in the book of Deuteronomy other things, principles like judgment, which foreshadow the events in the millennium. You read that in Deuteronomy 19. And we're studying this quarterly, we're studying the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul latches on to the concept of covenants. He also latches on to this idea of curses. Because what did he say about Jesus? Cursed is he who hangs from a tree. That Jesus became a curse for us. What does that really mean? I don't know that I fully appreciated it until I read Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 29. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 29, Moses outlines some of the blessings and then goes in great detail enumerating the curses that befall if we do not follow the law, if we do not retain and stay in that covenant relationship with God. I thought it was interesting that when I finally grasped the magnitude of what was being said, what Paul was saying when Jesus became a curse, I immediately thought of another story in John. See, just before the woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees are looking out upon the crowd and they said something very interesting. These people, who they were supposed to act as intercessors for, these people that they were given the privilege to serve, these people who looked to them 
for guidance so that they would stay in harmony with God, stands up and says, look at these people. They are cursed because they don't know the law of Moses. Wow. And that brings me to the last item. When Christians think of the book of Deuteronomy, we typically describe the book of Deuteronomy as a repeating of the law. But if you get an opportunity to meet with someone who is a Messianic Jew, or even somebody who is Hebrew, they have a totally different look upon the Deuteronomy. I didn't understand it until I started studying covenants. Because, see, they don't see it as a repeating of law, the way we do as Christians. And we know that law has been given a black eye by Christians today. They see it as simply a continuation, an amplification of the promise of God. See, they see the book of Deuteronomy as a covenant. They see it as, we would sit back and think of the Ten Commandments today as the Reader's Digest version, and Deuteronomy, the full-fledged version. What is a covenant? What's the closest thing we have in our culture today to a covenant? Because in Western culture in particular, we have lost this concept. A covenant is a binding agreement. In biblical terms, it's a solemn agreement. You don't go into it with casually. We should not go into marriage casually. And yet, this concept is lost on modern Christianity and society as a whole. Now, in the Bible, there are Four different types of covenants, and I'll explain the fifth in a second. There is a blood covenant, and you're probably familiar with that because you have a solemn agreement, and what happens? A sacrifice is given to seal it. And the symbolism is often that if I violate this covenant, what happened to this animal will happen to me. There's a threshold covenant. And that's a critical one to understand because the Passover is a threshold covenant. Remember, the doors, the blood was painted over the doors of the posts. And if you understand threshold covenant, you will understand better the story of Lot on how he, he invites the angels in. And see, in that culture, even to this day in the Middle East, you will find places that if I welcome you into my home, I now am responsible for your welfare to the point where I will lay down my life to protect you. And we miss that because it's not in our culture. We miss that nuance that's so critical to understanding what Lot was doing. Because I don't know if you were like me. I remember having read that story many times, sitting back and thinking, what kind of a man is this that he would offer his daughters? That should offend us. But there was a principle that was driving behind. There's another covenant that's referred to as a salt covenant. It's the covenant that he entered into with David, sometimes referred to as a covenant of peace. And then there's this word testament, which often is treated as synonymous with covenants, but it has a slightly different meaning. And if you have made the connection of a testament, think of a last will and testament. 
because when Jesus talks about it, the Last Supper, he is confirming a New Testament, a new covenant. He is adding a slight meaning to it. And then there's this term that I really dislike, actually, because it confuses the heck out of me. I don't know if you've ever found that with, with scholarly terms, get confused. I remember the first time hearing about type and anti-type. It took me years to figure out what the heck an anti-type was. They call it a suzerain vassal. Personally, I prefer the name Royal Grant Covenant because I can understand that. What is it? It, in essence, is a binding agreement. It is, in essence, a covenant between two parties, but the two parties are of complete and utter unequal strength. In fact, it's such that the suzerain has all of the power and the vassal. Have you ever heard of the concept of a vassal state? How much power does a vassal state have? None. Only what's granted to them by the one that they have submitted to. And scholars have recognized that as they went back at the time of the Exodus journey, that they have uncovered, uncovered literally hundreds of, of these types of covenants that the Hittites and others got into where there's really these, these city-states, and one would be stronger than the other, and they would enter into this agreement, and the, the, the suzerain, the stronger of the two, would enter into this agreement knowing, knowing that the vassal can't keep their end of the deal. Remember what the Israelites said in chapter 19 before God even spoke the Ten Commandments. Keep in mind that throughout the entire journey from coming out, they were always willing to follow God, right? They were always obedient. They never murmured, right? They kicked and screamed and accused God of all kinds of things the whole way. Suddenly, they come to Mount Sinai, and suddenly they have a change of heart, and they sit back and say, Hey, Lord, everything you do, we will do. Before God even asked them and instructed them. They spoke presumptuously. Because the reality is, is how long did it take before they had already violated? And I'm reminded of my own baptism. I don't know if you said it when you were baptized, but I did. I will never sin again, right? Yeah, I wish. So I want to talk a little bit about the structure of a covenant because I want us to see why this is so critical. Now, I want to preface it for a second that I've broken it up into nine parts. If you go out and you study uh, covenant theology, biblical covenant theology, you will find that all of these principles are present. They may be in different order. They may be grouped differently but the principles are all there. The first is a preamble, and the purpose of a preamble was simply to identify the name and title of the individual. The second portion is a, a historic prologue, and it is in essence a summary of the deeds that the suzerain, the stronger party, has already performed on behalf of the vassal state. The third is stipulations, the requirements to remain in a covenant relationship. Are you beginning to see any connections? 
Next is an enumeration of the blessings, the benefits that the individual receives if they stay in covenant, and the curses, that is, the evil calamities which can befall someone if you step outside the covenant. Lastly, there's in addition, there are aspects of there needs to be a witness for the covenant, where both parties need to see a witness for it. The duration of the covenant needs to be stated. There is also a written record, and along with that record, written a provision for it to be read on a periodic basis. In the human covenants, they were read annually. God put a provision in that I believe it was every seven years it was to be read. And so when you look at this, think of some of the covenants that are in scriptures. As I did the study, I discovered that there were not one, not two, not five. But God enters into and uses the term and concept of covenant language 18 different times leading up to the new covenant. Now, in those, he doesn't always use the word covenant. For example, in Habakkuk, it sits back and he says, all men are like Adam. They violate the covenant. And we sit back and we scratch our heads and sit back and say, well, where does it ever say covenant? It doesn't. But what's the consequences for stepping outside the covenant? Curses. And was there curses that followed Adam after the fall? So yes, it was a covenant. See, as, as a Seventh-day Adventist, we like to talk about the Ten Commandments written on stone. I get disappointed now because what we should be talking about, the Ten Commandments, is it's an everlasting covenant. We get it right that it's written on stone. We get it right that it's a reflection of God's character. We have all those parts right. Don't misunderstand me. But they're a covenant. It's relational. As I mentioned in the last sermon, love is relational. And I see some of you saying that it has to be here in the heart. Amen. See, the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets of the covenant, placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. I'm excited about one of the ministries that we have in our community of faith, Lightbearers Ministry. If you're not familiar with them, they have a superb program going on right now called Tabletop. Where four men in our faith are talking incessantly about the covenant relationship with God. And I praise that. I wish we would talk more. Because see what I have found that when people sit back and say, oh, you're a Sabbath keeper. Oh, that's the old covenant. My response to them now is slightly different than what I used to say. My response to them now is, oh, so you don't believe in the new covenant that Jesus sealed with his blood. Yeah, that catches their attention, doesn't it? Because you see, if you read Hebrews 8, the Ten Commandments are part of the new covenant. The difference is, is in the old covenant, it was written on stone. In the new, it's written in our hearts. And how is it written in our hearts? By beholding Jesus. By beholding his life. By beholding his death. By beholding a hope in a resurrection. Did you know that the Sabbath itself is a covenant? A covenant within the covenant, if you might think of that. I've mentioned already that the book of Deuteronomy, in for the Hebrew, is considered a covenant because it follows. 
these same principles. Leviticus chapters 23, which enumerates the feasts, and chapter 26 in Leviticus, which talks about, interestingly enough, Sabbath and idolatry, the two longest of the commandments, he expounds upon them and again uses covenant language. Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua himself uses the word covenant. We have the new covenant. And some scholars even believe that the best way to look at the seven letters to the seven churches is to think of them as a covenant as well because they follow the same formula. Each letter contains a different description of Jesus. Each letter enumerates. Each letter encourages. Each letter offers a blessing. What is the most misunderstood covenant? It's a given. The new covenant. How many times have you or I have heard people sit back and say, oh, we're under a covenant of grace? Have you ever heard that? The only problem with that is it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? There's only one problem. You will never in the Bible find the word grace and covenant used together. I looked. Trust me, I looked hard for it. It's not there. And as I thought and I pondered about it, I suddenly realized that it's one of those oxymorons. There's a reason why covenant and grace are never used together. If you're in a covenant relationship, why do you need grace? See, it is the grace of God, Titus 2. It is the grace of God that teaches us to live soberly and righteously. It is the grace of God that gives us the power. See, at Mount Sinai, they thought they had the power within themselves to keep covenant, and God is sitting back and saying, no, you don't. But the only way you're going to learn that you can't is you're going to have to learn the hard way. I'm going to send my son to teach you the right way. So there is the power of the Holy Spirit. Only through that, through his transforming power, that we can be in that covenant relationship we can enter into. When you think of these patterns, think of the Ten Commandments for a second. The preamble, which is supposed to be the name and title, what does it say? I am the Lord your God. The historic prologue, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The stipulations, you see them through one through ten. From the whole place, from don't have any other God, to thou shalt not covenant. And if you remember what I've shared with you in the past, I love the structure of it because here's the solution to all the problems in the beginning. Don't have any other God. And here's the cause of all the problem. Don't covet. Because everything we do in between is because we covet something more than God. Are there blessings in the Ten Commandments? Yes, there are. What does he say? Showing mercy to those who... Love me and keep my commandments. You know, I asked, and I've done this several times. I've asked people, when Jesus said that, do you love me, keep my commandments, what commandment was he quoting from? You know the sad part about it? Because I remember the first time I discovered that. I was excited. I have found pastors who can't even tell you what commandment. Are there curses listed in the Ten Commandments? Sure there are. Visiting iniquity upon the fathers of the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. Your understanding of the character of God will 
have to thrash out whether you believe that God is inflicting them upon the people or whether it's simply the natural consequence of their sinful ways. And how about the one where he says, do not take the Lord's God's name in vain, for he shall not hold you guiltless. I grew up in a church that not only did they feel that the Ten Commandments were not important, but they felt that they had been granted the authority by Jesus, by God, to actually change the Ten Commandments. And when I went back and studied what did they do, because if you go online and look at this particular community of faith and how they phrase the Ten Commandments, here's what they did. The historic prologue of what God does for us, has done, and promised to do, was removed. The blessings were removed. Think about that. Why would you remove the blessings out of the Ten Commandments? And it doesn't take any stretch of the imagination to know that the curses too were removed. In addition, that when you take a look at the two largest of the commandments, they were both reduced by 90% of the words. I pray that our evangelists will start emphasizing that. I've been in the faith long enough that I've, I don't know how many Revelation and Daniel seminars I've gone through. And I don't know anyone that ever emphasizes the fact that they removed the blessings and they removed the curses. And that they said, thou shalt have no other gods and changed it to say, thou shalt have no strange gods. Because see, if I change it to strange, guess what? I can define what a strange god is. The Sabbath is a covenant. Turn with me if you'd like to follow to Exodus 31, verse 12. And again, I'm going to read. And as I'm reading this, I want you to keep in mind these elements of a covenant and see if you start to see these elements popping off the page. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath. Therefore, it is holy to you, everyone who profanes it. How many people? Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. i got to stop and make a moment here. Remember in Numbers 15, there was a story of a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. And Moses was struggling. What do I do with him? And he goes to the Lord. Personal opinion, I think what he was struggling with is, do you really want me to put him to death? Because he was already told what the penalty for was. So he wanted affirmation. He wanted Jesus to tell him, put him to death, take him outside to camp. And it wasn't just because he violated the Sabbath. You've got to read the whole context to understand that it was a sin of presumption. That's what his real sin was. He presumed upon the mercy of God. For those who do any work on it, the person shall be cut off from among his people. 
Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. What's perpetual mean? Forever. It doesn't change. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was, I love this word, he was refreshed. Have you ever worked hard? Patrick, I'm looking at you. I'm sure that when you get to the end of a, of a, of one of those um, races and stuff like that, you get to the end, and what are you doing? <sighs> is there a preamble in this? Is there some place where the name and title of God is stated? Is there a historic prologue? In this case, I am creator. I created you. Is there a stipulation? Yes, keep the Sabbath holy. And he goes and enumerates it. Is there a blessing? Absolutely. Because it is God who sanctifies us. Try as you like. You cannot sanctify yourself. And are there curses? Sure. Deuteronomy itself is a covenant. And this is why so many scholars that have studied this, and I was amazed to go back and find that for centuries Christian scholars have known this. Why it's not taught more, I don't know. But there is a historical prologue. If you take a look at the way Deuteronomy is structured, chapters 1 through 4, Moses enumerates everything that went on in their journey. From chapters 5 through 26, you see that there are some general statements and some very specific stipulations on what Israel is to be done. Many of them are not discussed anywhere else but Deuteronomy. And in them, when you look at it, you find principles enumerated as well that are not necessarily always revealed when they're done and spoken. I've already mentioned to you, and if you haven't read it lately, I would highly encourage you during this time as we're studying the book of Galatians to go back and read Deuteronomy. Read Deuteronomy if you can but at least at a minimum, chapters 27 through 29. So that you can read not only the blessings that he promises us, but read the curses and understand that every one of them were laid upon Jesus, our Savior. And in the end, chapters 31 on, provisions for the covenant to continue where Moses anoints Joshua, Jesus, who is the one who will lead us into the true promised land. So you may be asking yourself, why on earth did I name this sermon the Forgotten Book? I want to preface this, that this is not a criticism. I'm just going to share some facts. Some of you may already know, because we've had personal discussions on this, We've been doing Sabbath quarterlies. The first quarterly was published in 1888. It actually wasn't a quarterly. They were done semi-annually the first year. And from that year on, they have been published every quarter. In all, 129 years. In all, more than 500 publications. The theory behind the Sabbath quarterly is is that every five years, we will cycle through all the core doctrines and touch upon all all of the books at some point. 
knowing that there are 66 books in the Bible, you do the math and realize that every book could be covered at least seven times. Now, I would not want a lot of our quarterlies devoted to just one book. I remember the most painful, and I hate to say this, and I probably shouldn't be saying this from the pulpit. I'm sure I'll hear about it. I remember the single most painful quarterly going through was the book of Jonah, an entire quarter on the book of Jonah. All I could think of was how many times could we beat this story to death? I'm sorry. You could have, you could have summarized it very quickly. I would hate to think what we would do with the book of Jude or the book of Obadiah. Those, by the way, are one chapter long. And if you haven't guessed it already, where I'm leading up to, you want to take a guess what the one book we haven't ever covered? The book of Deuteronomy. The book that Jesus quoted from most. The book that Jesus used, quoted from the thwart Satan. Giving us the tool that when Satan comes our way, that we too can thwart Satan's temptations. I'm not saying this is a criticism. Simply stating a fact. I was passionate enough about it that I wrote them. It took me a while to get a response from them, and I finally did after a few weeks. I was beginning to think that they were conveniently ignoring me, and I was sitting back and thinking, it's like, hmm, can I use some of those skills I learned as a computer geek and, and start spamming them to death? I finally heard back from them. It was a very short, very nice response. This fact was pointed out to us at our last conference. We plan to do one. Expect to see it in the year 2023. The human side of me, there's still a little bit of that in me. There's actually a lot. The human side of me wanted to to send them a little zinger. The human side of me wanted to sit back and say, thank you very much. Now I know I can, that Jesus won't be back for at least another six years until we get it right. I don't know if that's true, but that's what was in my heart. And so I leave you with this. If you will, turn with me. If you want to follow along, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to read chapter, excuse me, verse 4 through 9. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This is in the Hebrew known as the Shema. You may be familiar with it. You may have it memorized. If you do, awesome for you. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to share two last verses with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall what? Say it along with me if you feel. I'm reading from the New King James. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to who? To your children. And shall talk to them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I think that covers just about everything, doesn't it? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be the frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I would say the doorposts of your heart. Deuteronomy 4.13, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. Reflect his character, which he wrote on two tablets of stone, which through Jesus, hopefully they're written on your hearts. In Deuteronomy 36, verse 6. 
And it is the Lord your God who will circumcise your heart. And the heart, he doesn't stop here. This is such a blessing. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Because he doesn't stop with just us, but upon the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that we may live.